Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Franz Fanon was one of the most influential revolutionary thinkers of the last century. Born in Martinique, Fanon played an active role in the Algerian struggle for independence. In books like Black Skin, White Masks and The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon transformed our understanding of racism and European colonial rule. All this in a life that ended at the age of 36. Our guest today is Peter Hudis. Peter teaches philosophy at Oakton Community College and he's the author of Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. What was the particular context of Martinique and the French-ruled Caribbean into which Franz Fanon was born and where he spent his formative years? And how did it differ from the French colonies in Africa, for example? Martinique, like Guadeloupe, like other French, English, Portuguese or Dutch speaking areas in the Caribbean over the years in Spanish, was a colonial settler state. Not that unlike, in a certain sense, some of the African colonies of France. It was a deeply racist society in which there was profound racial segregation. There was a situation where historically the vast majority of of people who had constituted the population of Martinique were blacks from Africa with a small ruling elite known as the Becks, which consisted of either French settlers or mixed settlers, uh, Creoles, uh, who dominated uh, the entire life of the society economically and politically, certainly in the period that Fanon was growing up representing, however, no more than a few percentage points of the population. But Fanon himself grew up in a somewhat sheltered environment. He grew up in a middle-class family, or you might say lower middle-class family. And the mark of status in a colonial situation like the French Caribbean was language. If you spoke good French and could write in good French, quote-unquote good French, instead of Creole, this was a marker of open mobility. And his family, especially his mother, took great pains to encourage that development in him. So he was fluent in French from an early age and became quite proficient in it. That's an important phenomenon because in the French colonial system, uh, blacks in the Caribbean were seen on a somewhat higher level than blacks in sub-Saharan Africa, and even on a somewhat higher level than Arabs in North Africa because of their um, the connection uh, to the French language. So when Fanon grew up, to a large extent, he and his friends and family didn't particularly view themselves in terms of an African identity. Uh, This is something that begins to emerge as he's a teenager uh, in response to developments occurring in the island, especially surrounding World War II and its outbreak. But he doesn't think of himself, he thinks of himself as a part of France. After all, places like Martinique and Guadeloupe were part of metropolitan France. And um, they were considered themselves an integral part of this French empire And of course, there was resistance among the black populace to the discrimination that was being meted out against them. But Fanon really becomes radicalized really once he leaves Martinique, which is the first time he leaves. It's during World War II. The Caribbean had been the site of arguably the first anti-colonial revolution, the Great Slave Revolt in Haiti, long before the European conquest of Africa had actually been completed. Would that have been a reference point for Fanon, either in his youth or at a later stage in his life? Well, definitely, yes. He actually doesn't write that much directly about the Haitian Revolution in his writings, but it, you can see the impact of it throughout his thought, implicitly at the very least, and also by negative example. What I mean by that is what Fanon often talks about, especially in his first book, Black Skin, White Masks, but in his very earliest writings as well, is the uh, fact that in the Antilles, 
freedom was not won as it was in Haiti uh, through a revolution. Uh, this freedom of black slaves, at least, the end of slavery, was achieved in 1848 by the French deciding to get out of the slave trade and grant abolition. So this was always something that weighed upon him, that whereas in Haiti, they fought for their freedom and they achieved it at great cost. In the Antilles, that didn't happen. And so it was always this sense that um, when you're given freedom on a platter or so-called freedom, even the most limited freedoms that you can say that was provided by the French with the uh, with abolition, that's not the same as the kind of profound social transformation that you come from seizing your own destiny and being able to liberate yourself. So this is a current that runs throughout his thought is, uh, and that he continuously comes back to, is the need to affect social change through the self-activity of the revolutionary subject. How important was Fanon's experience of serving with de Gaulle's Free French Army during the Second World War? Yeah, and that's a very interesting episode in his life, which I think shows two things. One, he volunteers to fight for the Free French. Martinique had been separated, so to speak, from France by the Nazi invasion conquest of 1940 because the French fleet departed and escaped, got away from the Nazis, and part of it ended up in Martinique. And then after some deliberation and back and forth, they decided to ally themselves, uh, the French forces, with the Free French of Charles de Gaulle. And a call went out for volunteers to help the Free French liberate France. Now, Fanon is 17 or 18 years old when this call goes out, and he's a very idealistic young man. He, again, sees himself as part of the French context. But more importantly, he has this incredible idealism that permeates him, in which he says in a well-quoted letter that where freedom is denied to one person, it's denied to everyone, and I cannot walk away from a fight to liberate a nation from oppression. I must uh, do my task and take part in this as well. Now, his teacher at the time, one of the main founders and figures of negritude, Amy Césaire, who was his high school teacher, tried to dissuade him from joining the Free French on the grounds that this is a white man's war and it's not a black man's fight uh, one way or the other. Uh, But Fanon didn't listen to that. And Fanon enlisted in the Free French with these kind of idealistic motivations. But it had a really important impact on him because the extent of the depth of the racism, which was evident in, of course, when he grew up in Martinique, but was so much more amplified in his experience in the so-called free French military, where the officers, of course, were all white, blacks were treated quite miserably. And then he sees how blacks are treated in North Africa when when he's temporarily stationed in Algeria prior to taking part in the invasion of Southern France in the summer of 1944. He kind of loses uh, his illusions. And he realizes that while that idealism was very important, and I think Fanon always held to that kind of idealism, by which I mean a concern for universal human liberation. He was not only concerned for himself or the liberation of his kind, he was always had a perspective of, of, of liberation of humanity per se. But in this case, he realized it was a misapplied idealism. And he beca- it was a very bitter experience for him. He was wounded in the war and spent quite a lot of time convalescing afterwards which gave him time to think about the mistake that he had made. And this clearly radicalized him, the experience uh, in the French army. The following clip comes from Democracy Now! The historian Robin Kelly spoke to Amy Goodman about the legacy of Aimé César. He was probably one of the most important intellectuals. He was a founding editor of Presidents African, which was a journal which advocated independence, but also promoted um, 
black, not just French, but across the board, the African diasporic um, art, poetry, music, and political essays. He was also part of a wave of, of writers who, um, in the 1940s and 50s, had argued that the future of the world depended on the third world. In other words, the third world was the vanguard. The third world was the, the modern force that could civilize Europe. And one of his central uh, theses in Discourse on Colonialism was that when you look at the, the impact colonialism had on the modern world, we always look at the impact on the colonized. But he says, let's, let's look at the impact on the colonizer. Colonialism decivilized the West. It um, revealed its underlying barbarity. You referred there to the movement of negritude that was associated with figures like M.A. Cesar. Could you say a little more, perhaps, about the significance of that movement and the influence that it had on Fanon? Well, negritude was a black pride movement, a literary, artistic, cultural, political movement of primarily French-speaking black intellectuals of the African diaspora. Uh, And it had important figures in in, uh, West Africa, in the Caribbean, uh, and elsewhere. And the uh, founding figures of that were certainly Amy Césaire, uh, Leopold Senghor, and others who developed a movement in the French language parallel in some respects, you could say, to the Harlem Renaissance. And so it was an effort to try to push back against the racist stereotypes of blacks and Africans as backward and savage, et cetera, and lacking civilization or not having a history, a presumption that was widespread even in parts of the left at the time, and to argue instead that there is a rich cultural and historical heritage that needs to be recaptured in the course of fighting colonial, the contemporary colonialism. And so it was an important influence on Fanon early on. And he uh, certainly was attracted not only to the general political aims of negritude, but to its distinctive poetic and literary voice. Black Skin, White Masks is very much written in the style of much of negritude poetry and much of negritude literature. And you can see the influence of Césaire in particular, who is quoted throughout, is um, throughout Black Skin, White Masks, is very, very prominent. So that had a deep impact on him, even on a on a literary level, which is an important one. But furthermore, he begins even in Black Skin, White Mask, which is his first book, which he writes when he's 26 years old, right? Publishes when he's 26. You can see him also wary of aspects of negritude because Fanon was very suspicious and actually critical of a kind of black essentialism that tries to react against the denial of black agency by denying any black history or any authentic Black existence apart from colonialism, to then argue that there is a common denominator, a common element, a common element of blackness that pervades the black experience or experience of people of color, regardless of where they're living. And Fanon pushed back against that. He saw this kind of essentialism as something that was uh, misapplied. There's a famous phrase from that uh, he quotes from Senghor in Black Skin, White Masks, who says that emotion uh, is as Negro as reason is Greek. Senghor actually was paraphrasing a phrase from Gobineau, <laughs> who was an arch-European racist. So he sees that negritude in a way is what Hegel calls in his work, spirit and self-estrangement, that you critique something, but in critiquing it, you're actually the mirror image of that which you're critiquing. So by positing a kind of black essentialism, you're kind of buying into a stereotypical view of blackness, but trying to turn it on its head. And Fanon sees that that can create illusions about an authentic African past that needs to be returned to, which he had really no interest in. 
This is a person who was shaped by modernity and saw that the struggle for freedom had to be based on what was offered by modernity. But I should mention that at the same time, in Black Skin, White Mask, he does not dismiss negritude. He does not skip over it. He does not call it a minor term. He does not say it's just a way station on the way to the universal class struggle. He criticizes Jean-Paul Sartre for actually suggesting that type of standpoint because he argues that even if, so to speak, there are non-rational elements to the standpoint of negritude that stand to be criticized, nevertheless, it's an important standpoint in building up the subjectivity of the exploited Black subject by making the Black subject realize and feel that pride in being who they are and taking pride in the very attributes that a racist society denigrates in you is an essential moment in raising yourself up and being able to embolden yourself for fight against colonialism. Later, as he moves on in his political and uh, theoretical career, he becomes much more removed from negritude. By the time he writes uh, Wretched of the Earth, he's no longer interested in negritude. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that he's living and part of the revolutionary movement in Algeria, where the issue is not so much race as it is uniting the, the oppressed nationalities of Algeria, which of course are Arab, Black African, Berber, etc., and leaving the door open for whites who break from their privileges to join that revolutionary struggle in order to evict French colonialism and build a new society. That's not spoken to really by negritude. And he became increasingly critical of leaders of negritude, especially Senghor, for essentially accommodating to neocolonialism. They were so much in love with their French literary heritage that Senghor wanted to remain part of the French community, which Fanon felt was a betrayal of the independence struggle. And he also thought that the negritude movement was left behind by the movement of events in the African revolutions when it came time to pick up the gun and actually fight the imperialists uh, for the liberation, a lot of the negritude, figures associated with negritude, shied away from that. Even Césaire did not favor independence, uh, even though he's a communist at the time, did not favor independence uh, for Martinique. So he moves away from negritude, but his, the influence of negritude on him should not be underestimated. Although Fanon came to define himself as a socialist and as an opponent of capitalism, he didn't identify with any Marxist tendency of his own time. What do you think were the principal shortcomings of orthodox Marxism at that point in history when it came to race and the struggle against colonialism? Well, within the socialist or communist movement, and of course even the Marxist component of those movements, there was certainly not unanimity when it came to the position to take towards imperialism and colonialism. Some of the more reformist socialists or reformist Marxists actually either embraced or in some cases accommodated colonialism. Some forces in the Second International, for instance, that were willing to live, more than willing to live with colonial domination. The revolutionary Marxists were not. They were very sharply opposed to colonialism, but there was a problem with them that Fanon saw, which made it impossible for him to identify immediately with them. And that was the assumption that the transformation of the means of production, the abolition of private ownership of the means of production and the socialization of the economic resources of society in the hands of the proletariat would automatically lead to the negation and transcendence of race and racism. This is still widely held by people today who would say that in order to eliminate racism has to be done is the transformation of the economic structure of society understood as the abolition of private property, free markets, and free contractual wage labor, etc., and that this is what will 
ultimately provide the liberation of all exploited peoples everywhere. And this is written as directly as I just stated it in the founding program of the Socialist Second International in 1891, the Erfurt Program. It's stated almost word for word in the 1903 program of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, which was led by Plakhanov, Martov, and Lenin. And yet, Fanon is looking at that and saying that does not accord to his lived experience. He does not; he's not at all so confident that the, while he understands that racism cannot be abolished without the transformation of the economic conditions of a capitalist society, that in itself, while necessary, is not sufficient. There has to be also a transformation of the human relationships that make possible racialized ways of seeing, behaving, and interacting with others in the first place. And that involves, therefore, entering into a psychological dimension and dealing with the psychological impact of race and racism, which there wasn't much for him to find in the Marxism of that time for him to connect to and that would address his concerns. You know, I could express it also just briefly this way. W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction developed a very interesting theory, which has become very you know, influential on modern day theorists of race and racism about the psychological wage, that even when whites suffer in terms of not really economically benefiting from their racism against blacks, uh, he's speaking of the U.S. context, of course, they still gain a psychological wage. That is, they can go where they want. They can attend the church they desire. They can travel without restriction. They can vote, et cetera, et cetera. These all add up to a psychological sense of superiority, which invests them in the racism of the society. But, you know, there's a famous story where Du Bois goes back down south to witness as a reporter and report on a lynching. And he's quite uh, shaken by this experience, of course, and says afterwards, can we really explain racism by economic or even purely psychological causal factors such as this, such as matters of self-interest? Or is there something so irrational about racial hatred that it escapes that kind of framework? And I think that that is something that Fanon has an ear to, that uh, racism cannot be overcome without structural changes in the economy, but it cannot rest simply upon that alone. There has to be a transformation in our human character. And that's why he repeatedly talks in, throughout his works about the struggle against racism being a struggle to end the depersonalization of the individual subject who's subjected to racial discrimination. How did Fanon end up working in Algeria in the 1950s? And what impact did his presence in that country during its War of Independence have on his thinking? Well, it kind of was by accident. He got his uh, degree in psychiatry in 1952. This is uh, originally his Black Skin, White Masks, which is originally entitled An Essay on the Disalienation of the Black Man, was written as uh, his uh, dissertation for his psychiatric degree. Of course, the department thought that was ridiculous because it's such an unconventional work. For us, uh, So they rejected it uh, for his degree. He turned around and he wrote another dissertation on a more technical uh, subject in psychiatry, which is a very, very interesting dissertation, by the way. It's only been made available in full in English uh, two or three years ago in the uh, Alienation and Revolution volume edited by um, Robert Young and Jean Kalfa. But in any case, following getting his degree, he uh, works at various psychiatric clinics in France, and uh, he has a mixed experience at them. He begins to learn a technique from a Spanish uh, psychotherapist uh, and psychiatrist, Francois Touquel, uh, called sociotherapy. He gets very interested in this kind of 
liberatory approach to the practice of psychiatry. And then he tries to test it out in some of the uh, clinics that he's working at in France, but he's running into resistance, a number of obstacles and not non-acceptance of his standpoint. So he decides, you know, he's getting sick of France anyway. So uh, he had thought for a moment of going back to Martinique and practicing psychiatry there, but the opportunities weren't particularly right. It's only an island of 100,000 people or so. So he decided to try Sub-Saharan Africa. And there was a psychiatric clinic in Dakar, Senegal. So he wrote a Senghor a letter saying that could he recommend him for the job in the clinic. Senghor never answered the letter. So that job prospect didn't come through. But then he saw that there was a job opening in Blido Jonville in Algeria. So he went to Algeria. So he didn't go to Algeria because there was an ongoing revolutionary independence movement because that had been, did not really explicitly emerge over ground until almost uh, almost a year after Fanon arrived uh, in November 1954 when the FLN, the Front for National Liberation, launched a series of armed attacks against the French colonial authorities and announced the beginning of the revolution. So he didn't go there explicitly for political reasons, although you can say political motivation certainly guided him in his decision to go where he went. Algeria's struggle for independence became one of the leading stories on the international news agenda. The Algerian rebellion, which daily assumes the proportions of total war. Flying columns fan out through the country, which on all sides has become a target for hit-and-run attacks by native guerrillas. When the French president de Gaulle began talks with the FLN leadership, European settlers made a desperate attempt to sabotage Algerian independence. These rightists who want Algeria to remain French have vowed to fight to the bitter end to accomplish their aims. Two days after France signed her pact with the rebels, the secret army renewed terror bombings, killing 32 civilians and police in two days. The key to orderly peace lies with the French army. Observers note that if they remain loyal to President de Gaulle and control the secret army, true peace may come about in this strife-torn African nation. What role did Fanon play in the FLN as a revolutionary militant? Well, the uh, role he played um, as a militant is actually rather wide-ranging. He first is not a militant. When he comes to Algeria, he fir- his first contact with radical nationalists in Algeria is actually through Jewish Algerians that he becomes acquainted to through his wife. And then his circle of, uh, of, of acquaintances expands and he begins to get to know activists in the uh, FLN underground. And as he becomes, as he throws himself into involvement in this revolutionary movement, he can't do so openly because he's heading a psychiatric clinic. And that would, of course, be the end of his position if he ever breathed any sign of support for the revolution. But surreptitiously, he uses the clinic to aid revolutionary fighters. He ha- he hides guerrillas who were being chased, or he actually conducts psychiatric treatment on those who are subjected to torture by the French authorities. And so he's using his place in the hospital within the limits that are afforded him to give direct aid to the extent possible to the revolutionary cause. But at the same time, and this becomes increasingly the case after 1955, he becomes more deeply embedded in the discussions within the FLN leadership over the course of the revolution and the nature of the struggle. And he becomes associated with a wing of the FLN, which was led by Ramdani Abani, who was a left winger who thought that one of the problems of the FLN and the nationalist movement in general was not being clear about the kind of society they wished to replace it after the achievement of independence. And he took a much more radical position, Abani, and wanted to try to 
bring the, the, the revolutionary movement into the urban areas. And the battle, the famous Battle of Algiers was something that's Fanon supported very strongly, which was a kind of an initiative that came out of the tendency associated with Avani. The Battle of Algiers, of course, was proved to be a defeat uh, for the FLN. And that's why they increasingly relied on peasant recruits and fighting from the countryside and uh, attacks on the cities uh, continued nevertheless as well. But the point is, is that he was involved in a lot of the discussions and debates about the tactics and strategy to be adopted within the FLN. He wasn't at the conference, the famous Suman conference that had deliberated some of these issues, but he was at later conferences that were held by the under, in the underground uh, discussing and debating some of these issues. The French eventually, of course, force him out. He gets basic word that he can either be arrested or assassinated by the French because they're suspicious of his activities at the hospital. So he writes a famous letter of resignation, leaves Algeria, and then goes to Tunisia, where he becomes uh, the editor, one of the chief editors of the uh, FLN's newspaper, El Mojahid, which was published in both French and Arabic. And many of his articles in that uh, have been translated and published in Towards the African Revolution, but uh, quite a number were left out of that anthology. And so there's a good number of them that appear for the first time in English in the volume Alienation or Revolution that I just mentioned. So he was certainly very critically engaged in the FLN, both within Algeria and then later from exile in Tunisia and Morocco. And then, of course, the last two years of his life, he becomes the Algerian government in exile's roving ambassador for sub-Saharan Africa. And he's based in Accra, Ghana. And that's where he gets to know Nkrumah and gets to know other Siko Torre and other leaders of the African revolutions firsthand and travels throughout the African continent trying to both support their struggles, but also trying to generate support from the Algerian struggle, which he sees as the pivot of the revolutionary struggle in Africa against the French, uh, tries to get support for their cause. The Ghanaian leader Kwame Nkrumah spoke to a conference of African political activists soon after his country gained its independence in the late 1950s. He stressed the importance of African unity for liberation. Our greatest danger stems from disunity and the inability to see that the realization of our hopes and aspirations, the realization of our objective of total African independence and of our future progress and prosperity is inextricably bound up with the necessity to unify our policy and actions in connection with the continuous struggle for independence and the greater tax of economic and social reconstruction beyond it. We must therefore face the issue of African unity now, for only unity will make the artificial boundaries and regional demarcations imposed by colonialism obsolete and superfluous. How did Fanon perceive the role of the French left in all its various forms during the Algerian War of Independence? Well, people have to understand that the French left had a very despicable role vis-à-vis the Algerian Revolution. The Socialist Party under Guy Mollet basically uh, wrote, the, the, uh, imposed the actual crackdown, the, 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 the severe restrictions, martial law, etc., against the revolutionaries themselves when they were in power. So there were no friends to the uh, Algerian revolutionary struggle, nor was the Communist Party, despite its verbal commitment to Leninist principles of anti-colonialism, because they uh, consistently tail-ended or supported, in one way or another, a French colonial policy in Algeria. They gave lip service to the idea of self-determination for Algeria, but they did not 
mobilize any opposition to the war. So Fanon was thoroughly disgusted with both of them. I should mention that a very famous, uh, what Fanon is very famously associated with a critique of neo-colonialism, which uh, refers to uh, newly independent African countries and elsewhere who become politically independent and throw off colonialism on a political level, but nevertheless remained enmeshed within the economic dominance of the colonial powers. The first time that I'm aware of that he used the term neo-colonialism, he's using it as a critique of the French Communist Party, where he says that their attitude smacks of a neo-colonial attitude. <laughs> so uh, he had uh, he was extremely critical of the French left's large-scale failure to come to the aid of the African revolutions, and the Algerian revolution in particular. Now, there were individuals, including Jean Son, who was his publisher in France, who did quite brave and considerable work to try to support surreptitiously the Algerian movement from France. And there was, of course, people like Jean-Paul Sartre, who took an early stance and a very brave, honorable stance in support of the African revolutions. But even with them, Fanon never felt completely satisfied. Even with Sartre, who gave, you know, really, I mean, Sartre was a victim, was a target of an assassination attempt by the French secret police because of the kind of support he gave to the African revolutions. Nevertheless, he thought those individuals, which are relatively small number of individuals that were standing up and opposing French policy in Algeria and Africa, he thought they still were not doing enough because they were suffering a life and death situation. And he sees the French are, are, are not pushing the envelope and risking their lives for this cause that he and his associates are. I should just mention as a coda here as to how deep this neglect of the Algerian revolution went. You know, subsequent major thinkers of the French left, like Louis Althusser, Michel Foucault, both of whom spent some time, uh, considerable with Althusser, three years with Foucault in the French Communist Party, did not have much at all to say about the Algerian Revolution. It was some members of the Socialism of Barbary group of Costoriadis and Claude Lefort, Lefort especially, who had some interesting things to say about uh, in support of the Algerian Revolution, but Castoriadis didn't show much enthusiasm at all for it. And even so, the French anarchist or far left did not measure up in Fanon's eyes to what he expected of them. You mentioned there are some of Fanon's personal contacts with leaders from the first wave of African decolonization figures like Kwame Nkrumah. What were his impressions of that early stage of African post-colonial states and movements? Yes. Uh, well, that's a complicated question, depending on which states we're talking about, right? Uh, so he was somebody who, uh, he was in Accra in, in 1958, even before he became the roving ambassador for the uh, provisional government of Algeria. So he met many of the leaders of the African revolutions at a number of conferences. And of course, he knew, as I mentioned, had met early on, had met relatively early on, had met Nkrumah, Siko Torre, Lumumba. He was especially close to Felix Mumia. Of, um, of Cameroon, uh, who was tragically murdered by the, uh, by the French, and that took a, as Lumumba was tragically murdered in a conspiracy uh, forced between the CIA and the Belgian authorities. And these losses weighed very, very heavily on him. But he was somebody who was in direct contact with many of these leaders, also Liberia, Ethiopia. I mean, we can talk about many, many other countries that he traveled to. And it's a mixed evaluation from what we can gather I mean, he greatly respected, obviously, what Nkrumah achieved in Ghana. I mean, Nkrumah was the one who dared and stood up to British colonialism. He was the first one to get independence on the African continent, from uh, certainly from the British. 
But at the same time, he was not exactly uh, wild about Nkrumah's effort to sympathize Gandhi and, and Lenin. That is, uh, he did not think that uh, a peaceful road to a transformation of power, uh, to eviction of French, uh, French or English colonialism would succeed in much of the rest of Africa, even though it did succeed in places like Ghana and Guinea. Uh, and he was fully aware of that. But he was also uh, very devoted to trying to develop an Africa Corps of sub-Saharan Africans that would come to the support of various different revolutionary regimes and other uh, revolutionary movements in other parts of Africa. So like Ghana would help Lumumba in, in Congo by sending forces, sending troops. Could be aid, direct military aid sent to the rebels in Algeria, etc. And he worked very hard to develop this Africa Corps and all the revolutionary African leaders, you know, supported it, at least give lip service to it. But he didn't think that they took it that seriously, and he didn't think that they did enough. So there was a, at least an implied criticism there in terms of his relationships. With at Lumumba, he admired Lumumba immensely and thought that Lumumba was really, in a sense, his movement, him and his movement in Congo was the linchpin of the African revolutions, in a sense, which is, I think, what the Europeans also understood, which is why they wanted to kill him so quickly. Because if Congo goes and maintain, if Congo maintains its independence under a radical leadership of uh, people like Lumumba, uh, it's only a matter of time between the rest of sub- South Africa begins to feel the fire of revolution. And as Robert Subokwe, a leader of the Pan-African Congress, had famously put it in 1962 or so, just around the same time Fanon is, is writing The Wretched of the Earth, if South Africa passes into the revolutionary movement, and there's a revolutionary, successful revolutionary upsurge in South Africa, it would, it would light a flame spreading all the way north. That would be the most important ingredient in creating a truly pan-African anti-colonial alternative. So his murder was something that deeply distressed Fanon. They caught him on his way to Stanleyville and flew him back. Patrice Lumumba securely wrote. In the last year of Franz Fanon's life, the Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba was murdered. British newsreels reported on Lumumba's arrest as if it was a colourful episode in African politics. They were bundled into a heavily guarded lorry and driven off towards a place called Binza. Lumumba had been under house arrest, protected by UN troops in Leopoldville, when he escaped. But Kwame Nkrumah took the stage at the UN General Assembly and accused the UN itself of complicity in Lumumba's murder. Mr President, distinguished delegates, I appear before you today on a sad and solemn occasion. The first meeting of the General Assembly since the murder of the Prime Minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba. History records many occasions when rulers of states have been done to death. The assassination of Patrice Lumumba, however, is unique in that this is the first time in history that the rule of a country has been killed in the very presence of the United Nations forces whom he himself had invited to his country to restore law and order. That such a thing could have happened must make all those of us who believe in the United Nations anxious 
about his future. There was other, of course, regimes that he was very, very highly critical of, as in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the regime there, which was completely complicit with the French imperialism, uh, and many other regimes that tried to, like in Senegal, that maintained uh, connections with the French community that he thought was a betrayal of the, of the uh, national movements elsewhere in Africa. And so a lot of that criticism, of course, plays into what he's writing later, his last book, The Wretched of the Earth. That book that you mentioned, The Wretched of the Earth, which is still, I think, to this day, the most famous work associated with Fanon, it came with a preface from Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, what influence did Sartre have on Fanon and the other way around, of course? There's no question that Fanon was deeply, deeply influenced by Sartre from pretty early on and by existentialism in general. I mean, if you read what's now been published, we didn't even know they had uh, survived manuscripts of two plays he had written when he was about 20, 21 years old. And they've now been discovered and published uh, in the Alienation and Revolution volume. You can see the influence of existentialism on his effort to create a literary work. It's really not, these plays are really not about race and racism, but they're about the struggle of the individual in a seemingly meaningless world, which is a completely existentialist theme. There's some very interesting material, though, that's in those plays that I wouldn't have time to go into here, but I definitely encourage people to take a look at it. But there's no question the most important influence on Sartre in terms of his first book, Black Skin, White Masks, is Sartre's a short booklet written right after the war, Anti-Semite and Jew. And what Fanon sees and what Sartre has done is capture the structure of, anti- of anti-Semitic racism, not just the political economic structure, but the psychological mindset that's embedded within it. And he sees that this is a kind of template uh, for anti-Black racism, which is why he makes some very provocative comments in Black Skin, White Masks, that those who are anti-Jewish are by nature anti-Black and vice versa. That that these are two forms of racism that have a a shared structure. Now, it's interesting that he has this conception because he doesn't discuss it, and I don't believe it would have been within his purview to know this at the time, But as a lot of research has shown in recent decades, at least there's a strong argument that's been made in this direction, that the template for anti-Black racism is actually found in the racialization of Jews in the Iberian Peninsula beginning in the 14th and 15th centuries, without going into the whole reasons for that and the explanations of that. So what? there's no question that Fanon is very influenced by that work of Sartre which he uses thoroughly in the book in order to understand the dynamics and the psychodynamics of anti-Black racism. He's influenced by Sartre in other ways as well, but there is one fundamental way in which he does not accept Sartre's basic philosophical position, even this early. And that is Sartre as a Heideggerian of a sort, though not satisfactorily according to Heidegger, proceeds from a kind of view of human nature in which uh, we are thrown into a world without meaning, thrownness, and this notion that's very strong in Sartre of alienation as being virtually our ontological existence, as that the alienation defines virtually our being in the world as beings that are not asking to be born, that are thrown into this world that we didn't make, that are shouldered with all of these choices, which we can never quite know uh, which ones are right and which ones are wrong, anxiety, therefore, establishes itself as the fundamental human condition. And what Sartre has a lot of trouble in his work, especially his early work, is establishing the relationship between the individual and society, the the self and others. Okay, So Sartre has a kind of dark, pessimistic view of human nature to a certain degree, which Swinon does not accept. 
Fanon proceeds from a different assumption, as he puts it in Black Skin, White Masks, man is a yes resounding with cosmic harmonies. He thinks it's our nature to be intersubjective and communal. You might want to think about Marx's concept of species being in terms of this, though he doesn't ever refer to that directly. He has a sense of communal solidarity and reaching out to touch the other as being integral to who we are, being frustrated by a racist society, of course, and a class-dominated society. Now, ironically, that is exactly, even though he has this perhaps difference with Sartre on their perspective views of human nature, it's exactly that which takes Sartre, uh, Fanon, to be so interested in Sartre's work, because Sartre's vision of hell is other people, right? And this alienated world in which human relationships seem so inauthentic, for Fanon actually captures not an ontology of human existence, but it captures the reality of people of color living in a racist society. So he's very drawn to Sartre, but that doesn't mean he's a strict Sartrean in terms of his overall philosophical perspective. This is a point that's often overlooked by folks. Now, I could say more later on as Sartre tries to move towards a more uh, Marxian direction in trying to reconcile what he himself recognized was the limitation of his earlier writings in establishing the relationship between self and others and the individual and society and writes his famous uh, book, The Critique of Dialectical Reason. Fanon was fascinated by the book and was deeply uh, inspired by it and actually gave lectures on it to peasant recruits in Morocco, recruits for the uh, FLN who were fighting in Morocco and then crossing over the border to fight in Algeria. He actually gave lectures on on Sartre's book uh, to uh, rank-and-file militants. It would be nice to have text of those lectures, but I don't believe they exist. But we know that he gave them. So he was very close to Sartre. And it was only then at the end of his life in 19, I think the first meeting that he had with Sartre was 1959. So he's reading Sartre for at least 10 years earlier, but they don't meet face to face until 1959. Now, lastly, just quickly on your last part of the question, uh, and the, the meeting goes very well. And Sartre, I mean, Fanon makes the comment that, you know, he would give all the money in the world uh, to have another two weeks to talk straight with Sartre. <laughs> uh, so there's a deep impact there. Now, he was very thrilled when Sartre agreed to write his last book, which is written as he's dying of leukemia, Wretched of the Earth. And you can understand why. I mean, that would be a real feather in his cap. And it was a real nod to, by Sartre of the importance that he saw of Fanon's work. It does not appear that he was that happy with the preface itself. He was too sick at that point to write. But from some reports of people who were near him in the last weeks of his life is when the uh, manuscript showed up on his bedside. He wasn't thrilled with it. And one, I think there's real problems with Sartre's preface because he took the opening chapter of the book on violence and kind of um, turned it into almost a metaphysics of violence. He made it such the central issue of Fanon's work that it influenced many, many readings of Fanon ever since, in which Fanon is seen as an apostle of violence for its own sake or that creating a philosophy of violence. This is not what Fanon was doing. He was accounting for the necessity of violence in specific moments of revolutionary struggle, in specific circumstances. And most of all, he was trying to emphasize the inherent violence of colonialism and racism and colonial settler societies, no matter how legalistic and how much juridical legal relationships maintain peace and prosperity. I mean, this is really what he was arguing for. So in a certain sense, Sartre's preface helped provide a caricature of, of Fanon's overall position that was unfortunate both for critics of Fanon who criticize him unfairly for this, but also some followers of Fanon who thought that uh, this is the one thing he has to teach us is how to pick up the gun. 
uh, when he was not simply, you know, echoing Mao, power comes out of a power of a gun. He had a much more profound perspective than that. The reading of Fanon as a prophet of revolutionary violence inspired a song by Rage Against the Machine, Year of the Boomerang. Its title was taken directly from the preface to The Wretched of the Earth by Jean-Paul Sartre. In fairness to Rage, this wasn't simply a case of Western left-wingers romanticising revolutionary struggles on the other side of the world. The band's guitarist Tom Morello was the son of a Kenyan political activist who took part in the fight for independence. What were the principal arguments of the wretched of the earth and what kind of challenge did it pose to orthodox Marxism on the one hand and anti-colonial nationalism on the other? Yeah. Well, there's so many arguments in wretched of the earth, but I would I would say that the most important is one, his understanding of colonialism as involving what he called the Manichaean divide between the settler, colonial settler and the colonized. And this could also, of course, be understood outside of the context that he was specifically addressing the African revolutions and think about the whole trajectory of American society right down to this very day and many European societies. So this notion of this divide between is as if there were two species of being, which of course they're not, but as if they were. The misunderstanding and the misapprehension and the inability even to see the other who is a person of color as a fully human being, uh, while of course the colonizer always wants respect for the humanity, right? But it's not reciprocal. That's one great insight of Wretched of the Earth. Secondly is dehumanization, that what is the fundamental problem of racism is not simply the lack of economic opportunity and social advancement, although, of course, that's central to it, but the dehumanization, the actual dehumanization of the individual in terms of their interpersonal relationships. And the problem of dehumanization means that for Fanon, and this is really his third great insight, the struggle against the realities of colonialism and its dehumanization provides the possibility for recapturing a more authentic relationship to human possibility. That is, he heralded what he called the new humanism. He was not somebody simply deconstructing and criticizing racist structures of domination, although that is central to the entire book. He's doing that in order to provide a vision of emancipation that actually keeps its finger on the pulse of human relations and helps transform human relations through a revolutionary struggle. Relations between men and women, relations between the races, relations at the workplace. If you don't have that kind of transformation, what kind of fundamental change in society have you made? It's got to ultimately be on the level of interpersonal subjectivity. And this is what Fanon uh, is the theme that underlines all of his work and I think makes his critique of colonialism so profound. The uh, One of the most important parts of the book, of course, is this chapter on the uh, trials and tribulations of national consciousness, also referred to as the pitfalls of national consciousness, where he critiques the national bourgeoisie of the uh, developing world that allies itself with the revolutionary movement for independence, or at least the struggle for independence, but which wants to canalize the movement for independence, either within by confirming their rule as the new ruling class after the attainment of political power, 
or which and or which and they often go together, tries to canalize uh, the movement into channel them into uh, support for one or the other side of the superpower conflict in the Cold War. And Fanon is very worried that what's going to happen with the achievement of political independence is that this relatively weak and fragmented national bourgeoisie, much weaker than the national bourgeoisie historically has had proven to be in Europe, would, one, try to monopolize power on its own behalf, and two, would be unable to fully do it on its own accord, so it would make alliances both with the former colonial master, hence neocolonialism, or it would try to ally itself with, let's say, the Soviet Union or another pole of world capital. And while Fanon certainly was not against revolutionaries getting aid from any source that they can in order to fight the oppressor, the point is, is that he was looking for something much broader social transformation than that. So he speaks early on in Wretched of the Earth and continues his theme of argument through the book that the bourgeois democratic stage of the national bourgeoisie has to be skipped, at, or at least that, that, that stage has to be shortened. We must move from the race struggle to the struggle to unify the nation. And from the national struggle, we must move from there, he says, to changing a social struggle, social revolution, to transforming the alienated conditions of life that persist even after national independence. And his warning was, if that does not happen, then the revolutions will retrogress back into authoritarianism uh, in an effort to keep these young nation states alive and and unified, or revert back into tribalism. And he also talks about interreligious warfare as the nation state fails to fulfill its mission by moving beyond its confines uh, into what he calls social consciousness, not only national consciousness. I would add one thing here, though, is another thing that's going on in the Wretched of the Earth, which is a very, very important point that is often skipped over, is Fanon is also taking issue with the way Marxists generally read Marx in assuming that his discussion of the development of capital accumulation in Europe will be mirrored or followed by other societies that uh, try to enter the path of industrialization and modernity, such as in the developing world. So in Europe, of course, you had this process of what's called the primitive accumulation of capital. The peasants were stripped of their land. This uh, forced peasants off the land. They formed a wage-earning proletariat that had to work in factories. This accumulated a great deal of capital. It allowed for the flourishing of a national bourgeoisie, but also a large proletariat that can combat them. And Fanon is saying this kind of trajectory does not apply to Africa because colonialism, when it strips the peasants off the land and separates the producer from the objective conditions of production, does not have the same result as it had in Europe because it's not trying to industrialize Africa. It's simply trying to actually deindustrialize Africa to an extent and simply rob it of its natural resources and primary raw materials. So therefore, what you end up with is a small and weakened working class a large disenfranchised peasantry and a rapacious national bourgeoisie that doesn't even have the progressive elements that you can witness in some earlier periods of European history. So that's why he says in the book, in order to make sense of the colonial situation, we have to stretch the Marxist categories to a certain degree. We have to stretch them beyond where Marx took them. The irony, I think, about this, what he didn't realize is that in calling for this stretching, this calling attention to the fact that the The African path of development could not be read in terms of the earlier path of European development. He actually was more in conformity with what Marx himself held 
than he probably realized because Marx's followers read the chapters on primitive accumulation and capital as kind of a universal theory of how all societies are bound to develop once they embark on the path towards capitalism. Whereas Marx actually says in the second German edition that this discussion in capital is only restricted to a descriptive analysis of what happened in West Europe and it's not meant that sheds no light on what might happen elsewhere. We don't know. That would depend on the conditions they face in their own context. One possible criticism of the wretched of the earth, and this is a point that I've seen made by people who would be quite sympathetic to Fanon, is that he generalised from too small a sample. He generalised from the African experience to the whole of the global south, and he generalised from the Algerian experience to the whole of Africa. Do you think that criticism would be justified in whole or in part? It would be justified in part, but one has to be careful with that criticism because sometimes people read their own political position into Fanon in making that criticism. (laughs) So uh, we have to be judicious to Fanon. I think we'd have to say, well, first of all, I mean, the man was quite familiar with the situation in not only North Africa, but Sub-Saharan Africa. After all, he was a roving ambassador for a number of years, traveling from one African country to another. Uh, We're not saying that he had comprehensive knowledge of any one of them, uh, he was a latecomer to knowing about Algeria, and he spent enormous amount of time, uh, some of this I discussed in my Fanon book, trying to learn the nature of Algeria and Arab and Berber society in Algeria after he came there. But I think what most people are referring to in terms of that is his advocacy of violence and his privileging of the peasantry over the urban proletariat. Now, there's something to be said for on both counts for him overgeneralizing in a number of cases. The movement in Nigeria had a very large working class component, right? In Algeria itself, there was a not insignificant labor movement that was part of the national independence struggle that doesn't get as much prominence in Fanon as one would expect to have. And so you can make the case that he sometimes overextended that analysis too generally and fell into some problematic stances as a result. The most outstanding example of that is uh, with Angola. That is, uh, there was a conflict over between different liberation movements that were emerging at the time. The one that most stressed the peasantry over the urban pro- working class was the one that he threw in his lot with and supported. And they turned out to be a quite reactionary force, Roberto Holden uh, and his tendency. And he misread the situation in Angola because he was reading it through that kind of lens. But even there, it should be noted that, as everybody knows, the struggle against Portuguese colonialism had to be and was violent. Uh, It took the form of armed struggle. And it was was hard to see how that struggle could have occurred in any other way than that. So even when he was wrong on some of those particulars, he wasn't completely off base in terms of his general argument. But one thing to keep in mind in terms of this criticism that you're mentioning, what country in Africa today, maybe what one place in the world today, is Fanon most read and most appreciated? South Africa. Now, how could that be if Fanon's overgeneralizing about issues of the peasantry versus the working class and violence, etc.? What about South Africa? The following clip comes from a British news report on the funeral of Steve Biko, the South African activist who was murdered by the apartheid regime in 1977. Our country has a system of government which is a lie. Because we believe in separating people. 
Steve Biko oh, was deeply influenced by Funona. So many other people in the black consciousness movement and other political tendencies, including the Pan-Africanist movement. Why were they so influenced by Funona in South Africa? He was very prescient. He was almost prophetic in his warnings in The Wretched of the Earth about following this two-stage theory of revolution that first we make the movement for political independence, and of course there's going to be an extended stage of capitalistic development that's going to build up the resources of the country, and then only after so many years or decades of this we'll be ready for a true socialist transformation. Well, this is unfortunately what the stance of the ANC was, ultimately, and it's what has led South Africa to the stance that it's in today, which is not a not, a, not an adorable one, and many people in South Africa know it. So, One has to keep that in mind in terms of this criticism. Lastly, I want to say, there is a recent book on Fanon, which has some very interesting material in terms of this debate, Leo Zelig's uh, book, uh, Franz Fanon, which takes the position that Fanon underestimated the working class, as well as underestimating the ability of a minoritarian uh, working class under the control or under the leadership of a centralized, disciplined, and ideologically correct vanguard party to be able to steer past that bourgeois democratic stage of development towards socialism. But there's a real problem I have with that kind of an interpretation. Fanon understood, as Marx himself did, you cannot make socialism based on an minoritarian working class. It has to, Socialism can only be the active, conscious, purposeful result of the activity of the majority of the populace of any given country. You can't bring in socialism behind people's backs. And to try to transport the model of Lenin and Russia after 1917 or Trotsky on the notion that, well, a minoritarian working class, because, of course, the working class was 10, 15 percent of the population and the Bolsheviks didn't have the support of the majority even of that. But that a minoritarian support from the working class or the masses in general, because the peasants were kind of left out of this to a certain extent, under the leadership of a very strong, benighted, centralized party can pull one through the traumas and tribulations of revolutionary transition, even in the case of Russia, that turned out to be fallacious. Why would Fanon be asked to adopt that model for the African revolutions when they had failed in Europe? We're now going to hear a clip from a British documentary on the liberation struggle in Guinea-Bissau, featuring an interview with the revolutionary leader, Amilcar Cabral. Our army is not a, a military organization like the other armies you know, you see. Our army is uh, an instrument of our people to fight for independence. It developed from nothing until now what you have seen, you see. But uh, the principal character of our army is that we are not, we are not military people. We are armed militants, you see. And uh, after the independence, after have uh, realized our goal, the major part of these people have to go back to cultivate uh, the soil. How would you say that the ideas expressed by Fanon in The Wretch of the Earth measured up to the later experience of revolution in Africa when in the 1970s and 80s you had on the one hand the struggle against Portuguese colonial rule in Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau and then the struggle against white settler rule in Rhodesia and South Africa. Mm-hmm. Would you say there was a parallel between his own thinking on peasant-based revolution and the ideas of Amilcar Cabral, the Guinean leader? Cabral was deeply influenced by Fanon. And Cabral is really one of the most extraordinary uh, figures and thinkers that was produced by the 
post-World War II colonial revolutions. And what he was influenced by was Fanon emphasized in The Wretched of the Earth, he raised the question, what model of development must we adopt after independence in order to avoid the pitfalls of uh, this uh, of, of, of a bourgeois phase of development, uh, which will very quickly, he thought, turn into an authoritarian bourgeois rule and stage of development. And so he argues, Fanon does, for something that didn't happen in the African revolutions. It didn't happen in the uh, any of the anti-colonial revolutions, frankly, for decentralization instead of centralization. That is, you have to try to make sure that the revolution remains grounded in the masses who make the revolution. And of course, that applies to the peasantry, especially since they were the main fighting force in these independent struggles. How do you ground the revolution in the masses and keep the revolutionary leadership grounded in the mass base? But one way you do that is instead of by centralizing power and trying to have this, you know, huge mega projects with foreign capital funding them and going over the heads of the masses, do this through decentralized communal development projects that involves the masses. He even, to the extent he didn't want Af- the newly independent African countries to have a capital city. He says, why do all the bureaucrats have to live in one, one area closed off in the rest of the populace? If you force the politicians and the bureaucrats to move around to different parts of the country, you spend four months here and three months there and eight months there, including in the rural areas, they're forced to be more attentive to the actual needs of the people and it guards against bureaucratization. This is the kind of thing that Cabral was very influenced by, as well as the democratic tenor of Fanon's entire project. So in some of the liberated areas in Guinea-Bissau, the guerrillas actually held democratic elections within the liberated zones, right? And this was not the kind of thing where, okay, at the point of a gun, we're going to ask you who to vote for, <laughs> right? I mean, this was like, you know, open discussion, open debate within a anti-colonial revolutionary movement to try to avoid, during the course of the struggle, to try to avoid the tendencies towards statism and authoritarianism, which are almost inevitably going to come to the fore after state power is achieved. It's one thing to be fighting for freedom when you're not in power. The question is, how liberatory are you now that you've got power and could use it in all kinds of ways, including some nefarious ones? So I think on this level, Cabral was deeply influenced by Fanon and in some ways went beyond Fanon on on some of his efforts to practically implement some of these sorts of things. So yes, he was a a major issue in the uh, revolutions in the Portuguese colonies. And... um, the uh, struggle, uh, uh, I mean, it's not an accident that uh, the film that was made a number of years ago on the Wretched of the Earth was actually focused on uh, Mozambique and Rhodesia, right, and the conditions there. There you really see the Manichaean world that Fanon talks about in Wretched of the Earth in the kind of apartheid system that existed in Rhodesia and South Africa. But what really has Fanon speak to the freedom struggles in those lands is critique in the Wretched of the Earth of accommodating to the two-stage theory at the same time as avoiding a kind of ultra-left traditional European approach to that problem by suggesting that it can be resolved, uh, this problem of the two-stage, by relying on a tight, small vanguard party with support from only a minority of the population. And one should remember that in The Wretched of the Earth, uh, he has a quite striking passage where he attacks the single-party state and says the single party state is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, unmasked. He says a little bit more poetically than I have. And that is something that 
all people who are attracted to Fanon, or even if you're against Fanon, you have to take seriously his critique of the single-party state and ask what has been the legacy of single-party states in anti-colonial revolutions, and what was he on, what was he recognizing about the uh, the tragedy that would befall those uh, uh, freedom movements if they relied on that kind of an organizational structure. As a final question, what would you say the legacy of Fanon is for the struggle against racism today, whether in Africa or in countries like the U.S.? Well, um, I've thought about this a lot in terms of the U.S. And Fanon, you know, even has places where he directly suggests a link between what he's saying and the situation in the U.S., even though he didn't write much about the U.S. and didn't didn't pretend that he was developing a universal theory applicable to the situation in every country. He was very clear that he was writing out of his lived experience and was trying to make sense out of his lived experience as a black man, a colonial subject, first in the Antilles, then in France, and then in North Africa. But nevertheless, he points out how there's these layers in Europe, in the France that he lived in, there was this layers, there was kind of this buffer zone between the masses and the exploited, the police, the system of of legal authorities and educational systems and everything else that kind of would somewhat buffer the harshness of oppression. And he noted that in the colonial situation, it's much more Manichaean, it's much more clear cut. And those buffers between the police and the state and the masses are just not, they're not there. And that's why they suffer such enormous degradation and dehumanization. But he also, when you read that, you can see how, and he suggests that and, you know, in many places elsewhere in the world that have a long legacy of racism, like the United States, those buffers are also weakening that separate the, the force of the police state, uh, the police and the state uh, from uh, those who are subjected to racial oppression and other forms of oppression. So I think that he even had he had some important insights there. But I think the most important thing is Fanon develops a perspective that I think continues to be refreshing. And I think we needed to further develop it because it breaks out of a kind of the standard narrative we get in the left, especially in the United States, which takes either, okay, either one, a kind of class reductionist position that, yes, the fight against racism is important, but it's of secondary significance, or uh, some people would even say from that standpoint, a diversion from the class struggle. But the basic notion that many have on the left, including on the Marxist left, that the problem of race and racism is is essentially automatically resolved with anti-capitalist revolution understood in terms of the abolition of private property and markets and the creation of socialized production. I don't think there's much evidence that that's enough to end racism and to purge it from the from the minds and the spirit of humanity. It would take a much more thoroughgoing revolution to achieve that and one that actually would need to rethink is the conception of 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 an anti-capitalist alternative that has been propagated by many Marxists has it fallen short even of the vision that Marx himself had, who him also called his philosophy of humanism originally, and was focused on the transformation of human relations beginning at the point of production, but that doesn't mean it has to end there, okay? I think Fanon was picking that up in terms of the transformation of human relations is the fundamental issue. The other side that also you get, the opposite to the class reductionists or the class first proponents, are race-first proponents who might argue that the struggle against racism can be disassociated from the struggle against capitalism. Or even might sometimes this takes the form of striving for recognition based on one's attributes, uh, racial attributes that this society denigrates, 
in order to become accepted within the terrain of the given social structure and the given social system. Fanon also offers an alternative to that standpoint, which sometimes might be called a narrow version of identity politics, just as much as it's an alternative to the kind of class reductionism that sometimes pervades much of the left. And the reason is, is that, yes, Fanon wants the oppressed subject to take pride in who they are, to recapture their culture, to recapture their heritage, and to demand a redress of all that has been taken away from them by centuries of uh, settler colonialism and imperialism. And he wants a world of mutual recognitions. He defines his humanism as a world in which we recognize each other for our dignity and worth as human subjects and human beings. So lofty goal to strive for, but that's what he thought would be is the aim, what we have to what what any real freedom struggle implicitly aims for. But achieving that kind of mutual recognition is not a question simply of being of self-expression and of uh, and of uh, uh, it's not recognition in terms of oh we're providing equal rights. It's a deeper than a juridical recognition. It has to be a recognition of your, your actual humanity, your dignity as a person, and the refusal to allow anyone to be looked at or treated as a thing or as an object. And that can't be achieved, Fanon is suggesting, without a thoroughgoing social transformation. So you're not going to get rid of this problem ultimately without an anti-capitalist perspective. And you're not going to achieve successfully an anti-capitalist perspective unless you move beyond the traditional parameters in which anti-capitalist perspectives are framed, which is too often in terms of phenomenal forms like the market and property forms, rather than transforming the human relations or the alienated human relations that make such forms possible and that are, in fact, the conditions for their possibility. I'm not suggesting that Fanon worked this out, that he gave us the answer to this conundrum, this contradiction between these two dominant tendencies we deal with today. And I'm kind of simplifying the tendencies themselves for the sake of time here. But I am suggesting that Fanon, as well as a number of other uh, thinkers in the uh, decolonial world, have given us important conceptual tools to think outside the box, both when it comes to thinking about race and racism, and when it comes to thinking about what is a viable alternative to capitalism, which is rapidly destroying our planet. Many thanks to Peter Hudis for that tremendous account of Fanon's life and legacy. If you'd like to know more, I'd recommend starting with Peter's article for Jacobin, The Revolutionary Humanism of Franz Fanon, and his book Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. <laughs>